Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Dr. Creasy is currently traveling with his Logos students in Israel, and for the next several episodes, we will be hearing live, on-site teachings from the trip. We're also happy to announce the launch of the latest course in the Logos online classroom. Dr. Creasy teaches Deuteronomy. Podcast listeners will get 20% off by using the coupon code SCRIPTUREUNCOVERED at checkout. Just go to LogosBibleStudy.com and click on Online Classroom. Now, here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy, teaching from the Holy Land. Now, we're here on the Mount of Beatitudes. For me, this is my favorite spot on the entire tour, the Mount of Beatitudes. What we're going to see today, the Mount of Beatitudes, Capernaum, Magdala, uh, the boat ride on the Sea of Galilee, 90% of Jesus' public ministry happened here in a na- virtually a neighborhood, not much bigger than a small neighborhood. Uh, we'll get to Magdala, that would be the furthest we'll go, south on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus came in, through the Arbel Pass, and he would have stopped right there at Magdala, certainly to get a drink and rest a little bit, and he would have been in that synagogue that we'll see later today. Uh, right there, standing on the very mosaic pavement uh, that we'll be standing on. Here on the Mount of Beatitudes, Capernaum, I think Isaac pointed out, is right down the hill, and Jesus would often go into the hills to pray. Well, where are the hills? Right here. And if you look down, uh, all the way down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's a a concave shape to the hillside, and it's it's a natural amphitheater. Back in the 1980s, a graduate student did his dissertation on the acoustics of this hillside. And he put acoustic sensors and everything. And we used to be able to go down, walk down the hill, and sit where the banana groves are now. Uh, We can't do it anymore, of course, because now it's agricultural land. But we could sit there, and I would walk down the hill, and you would sit up the hill, and I could talk without a microphone in a normal voice, and you could hear me perfectly well. The acoustics of this hillside, and typically the breeze comes through the Arbel Pass, and it's sending your voice upward on that hillside. But the acoustics on this hillside are very similar to, to the Disney Center in Los Angeles. They are really, really good. So when Jesus would teach to big crowds of people, he would teach on this hillside. It's a natural amphitheater. And how many times had he gathered all the people here? and taught right where we are. And when he did, they would sit on the hillside, he would stand looking up the hill, and he would teach. And he taught in parables often, and a parable. A parable is not something mysterious or hidden. It's a compound of two Greek words, para, alongside, like a paramedic or a paralegal, alongside, and the verb bola, which is to throw. So a parable, is something thrown alongside an ordinary truth that you've heard so many times you don't hear it anymore, thrown alongside to illuminate that truth in a striking and memorable fashion. And I think Jesus, he was a great teacher. And he he would just pull these parables out of the air, like on the hillside. And I know he preached this sermon on the hillside. He said, a farmer was sowing seed And everybody turned around and looked up the hill, and here were the farmers sowing their seed, right? And some fell on rocky ground, and if you look at the hillsides, there are rocks everywhere. 
right? Some fell among the thorns. He just pulled that from what he saw right then, right then. And many of the parables were exactly like that. He would just take them from what was going on around him to illustrate in a striking and memorable fashion a common ordinary truth that you've heard so many times you don't hear it anymore. All that teaching went on here. If we think of the Sea of Galilee like a clock, okay, 12 o'clock at the top, from 8 o'clock to 12 o'clock, that curve of the Sea of Galilee, 90% of his public ministry happened there. Uh, he came from Nazareth. It was a 43-mile walk. We walked it a few years ago on the Jesus Trail. It took three days. We did about 15 miles a day, and we walked from Nazareth to Capernaum, and about 18 of us. And that was in 2015. And he would make that. That's not a long walk. We, it was a comfortable walk. We had a good time with it. And uh, so everything's close here. We were in the Negev. Things are far apart. But here up in Galilee, everything's very close. We're not in the bus more than about 10 or 15 minutes as, as we move along. So Jesus would often teach here on this very hillside and uh, big crowds of people. Remember the time that uh, there were so many people he had to get in one of Peter's boats and push out a little bit because they were there were so many people on the hillside, they were crowding him. So I couldn't teach if I'm right here on top of you. Right. right? I need a little distance to project. That's why he got in the boat and pushed off a bit. He needed 20 or 30 feet between him and the first row, you know, so that he, he could teach effectively. But he would often teach here on this hillside, and he would often at night come up here in the hills, up on the top, to pray. So what we're looking at out here, his eyes saw. Hear the birds, and he heard that. He was right here, right here. 90% of his public ministry right in this area. And I'd like to look at Matthew chapter 5, chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Well, here we are on the Mount. <laughs> it's the only Mount around. It's got to be here. And I'll start off with chapter 4 at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So all throughout Galilee, teaching, preaching, and healing. Josephus, our contemporary historian at the time, tells us there were 204 towns and villages in Galilee. And he went throughout Galilee teaching, preaching, and healing. How many did he visit? Well, probably about 204. And news about him spread all over the area. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, uh, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, the Decapolis are ten Greek cities, nine of them over on the, on the other side of the lake, that's Golan Heights. Nine of those cities are over there. Decapolis means ten cities, Deca and Polis, right? Nine are on that side. The tenth one was Beit Shan that we drove past yesterday on the way here. That was the tenth of them. And he went all throughout the Decapolis, so he taught over there as well. Jerusalem, Judea, the region across the Jordan, all these people heard about him and came to listen. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, big crowds, 
he went up on a mountainside and sat down, right down here, this very spot. And he began to teach them. This is a brilliant teaching. It has a clever and memorable introduction. It has six propositions that exceed the law. It has six applications of those propositions and a three-part call to action. What are you going to do about it? So we're going to look at the first part, the clever and memorable introduction, the Beatitudes. He began, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice he didn't say blessed are the poor. There's nothing blessed about being poor. I've been poor. I've been not. Not considerably better. <laughs> but I, oh gosh, in graduate school, I, I spent many times not knowing where the next meal was coming from. And oftentimes on Saturday morning, I had a little studio apartment, and right behind it, the parking lot and beyond the parking lot was an empty lot, and Jerry's Liquors was right down there. <laughs> and on, in, the, it, on, in the morning, I'd come out and I'd go out into the field and collect soda bottles that got. Or, beer bottles and stuff that got tossed away, take them down to the Safeway, get a nickel for each one, buy that much loose rice, and then on the way back stop at McDonald's and get a big handful of ketchup, and that was dinner for the week. <laughs> uh, I've been poor, I've been not, not considerably better. But blessed are the poor in spirit, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have a gaping hole in their heart that nothing else can fill. You feel that sense of emptiness. It's just not there. And you try everything to fill it. You try relationships, you try sex, drugs, rock and roll, everything, and nothing works. It's that space inside that only God can fill. And the very first step toward a Savior is to recognize your need to be saved. And it's that big empty spot in your heart. That's the first step. Once you recognize that, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the first step on the way. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourned, in part, a sense of bereavement uh, when you lose someone. But uh, blessed are those who mourn, those who recognize that gaping place that's so empty and mourn over it. They, they, don't, they want it to change. They, they want, to, want it to be alive. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not the meek who, when ad adversity comes, they cringe under a table, but blessed are the meek. M Deuteronomy says Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. Well, it was Moses who went back to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, right? And the, the, most, the meekest man who ever lived. And I think that's pretty funny because Moses wrote Deuteronomy. <laughs> He's saying that about himself. Right? Oh. But th those who recognize their position before God Almighty. I'm not God, right? God is so, so far beyond anything I can imagine. Recognizing that I'm a broken, sinful person and I have a desperate need for God. And recognizing that and that position before God. When, you know, we, when, when we die and we come into the presence of the Lord and we're, we're going to see him, we'll look him in the eyes, we'll see the wounds, 
and will we will we climb up in his lap? No, we'll be flat on our face on the ground before him, which is exactly where we should be. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's the next step. Recognizing the emptiness, mourning over it, putting yourself in a proper position before God, and then being hungry and thirsty for what God can give you, for Him filling that place. Blessed are the merciful, for they, they will be shown mercy. If you recognize that place in your heart, when other people don't, you're not to be critical of them, because you were there for a long time. But you have to recognize that they're at a different place in their relationship with God and be merciful to them and draw them toward God, not by beating them on the head, but by your own example and by your own prayer. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Why do you want that place in your heart filled? And you know, so often, I, I better be careful with Father Richard here, but um, you know, we, we emphasize eternal life. You know, we'll be raised. And, and that's a wonderful thing. But what's the motive behind your wanting a relationship with God? You know, is it for what God will give you, eternal life? And I think in, in many, I've thought about this a lot, in many ways, I think, you know, eternal life would be, that's kind of icing on the cake, you know? And what if that were not there? Would you still love God for who He is, rather than for what He's going to give you? And I think that's a really important thing to think about. What's my motive for loving God? Is it for what He gives me? Thomas Merton wrote about that. And he said, so often, I feel like a spiritual mercenary. <coughs> you know, I love God, I'm doing all this for God, for what He's going to give me, when I should be loving Him for Himself, even if He gave me nothing. And I think that's an important thing to ponder. And we have it right here. Blessed are the pure in heart, who have the right motive for wanting a relationship with God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You know, if you, you're drawn into a relationship with God, the peacemakers, well, those who get a Nobel Peace Prize, I suppose, but we become peacemakers too. Uh, in bringing other people to God, bringing them to peace, because we have no peace without God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. No, blessed are those who are persecuted, period. No, there's nothing blessed about being persecuted, but because of righteousness. Jesus was crucified on Good Friday, he was brutally killed. Every single one of the apostles was brutally killed except John. And I don't know, you think, well, John escaped that. But imagine being the, the lone survivor, having watched all of your brothers being killed. I'm not sure if I'd want that job, you know? I, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of things about you because of me. You know, how often have we been mocked and ridiculed because of what we believe? And, you know, I have. I spent my whole career at UCLA. And, <laughs> and was I mocked and ridiculed? No, I kicked, I kicked their butts. But no. <laughs> no. <laughs> My, 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 di my dissertation chairman and I were the only two Marines in the English department at UCLA. And, uh, and we're, we were two overt Christians. And uh, they didn't fool with, with us. But, uh, but you will be persecuted. You will be ridiculed. And I, I remember a, a terrible example of that. Uh, I taught every Friday evening in Phoenix, Arizona. Every Friday, I'd teach my classes at UCLA in the morning, get lunch at the faculty club, drive to the airport LAX, fly over to Phoenix, Arizona, and my very good friend, Jack Evans, would pick me up at the airport, would have dinner at his house, lamb chops, oh, they were good, every week. And then we'd go to class, and it was seven to nine. But we had to make it seven to 8.45. We didn't take a break, because the last flight back to LA was at 9.30. So we would run out of class, dash to the airport. I'd run like the old O.J. Simpson commercials running through the airport and come skidding into the gate uh, on Southwest. And they expected me every Friday. <laughs> and, uh, but I had to get back because Saturday morning I taught at Our Lady of Malibu in, in Malibu. And <laughs> the pastor there called himself the Vicar of Malibu. <laughs> and, but I remember driving from Westwood down to PCH and going up to Malibu. And at the time, I had a little BMW Z3, the top down, and I'm driving along. And, uh, and I had a, a, a Bible teacher on the radio. I had tapes I listened to. And, and he was talking. And this other convertible pulled up beside me with four really pretty girls in it. And without thinking, I reached over and turned it down. <laughs> I was embarrassed, you know, and uh, got me there. <laughs> you know. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Then he says, now, the, the Beatitudes, blessed is A for they shall be B. Blessed is C for they shall be D. And there, there's a, a repetition of sound. You can remember it. Because, like a song, you can remember a song with the tune, right? And the same thing with the Beatitudes. Really clever, and they're counterintuitive. You would think, blessed are the rich in spirit, right? Blessed are those who are happy. Uh, but no, it's just the opposite. So it's clever, and it's memorable. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown away. Well, that, that's a puzzlement. How can salt lose its saltiness? You are the salt of the earth. I never understood that until on one of our footsteps of Moses tours to Egypt, we had a whole day with the Bedouins, and we learned all about Bedouin life. And then the women, uh, we went in the tent, 
and they had a, a hole dug in the in the ground, maybe a foot deep, with twigs and brush in it, and lit it on fire, and fires burning, and then they had a, a metal dome they put over top, and then a big stick that could move the dome a little bit, and the dome got hot, and they made with flour and water dough, and kind of like pizza, they spun it around and made it real thin, and then right down on top of the uh, of the dome. And then real quickly, flipped it over with the twigs, and then we broke it up, passed it around, and ate it. It was really good. And then she made another one. And doing that, doing that, and cut it up, pass it around. And then she was going to make a third, but the heat had gone down. So she lifted with the, t with the, the stick, the, the dome, and reached in a little pouch, threw something in, <laughs> And the flames went up. And what'd she put in there? Salt from the Dead Sea. And what mineral does it have in it? Magnesium. So it flared up. What good is salt when it loses its saltiness, if you will? That is, its, it, its ability to fire back up again. He's speaking about the salt, the Dead Sea salt that was used for the earthen oven, the earthen oven. And uh, I, I never understood that until watching the Bedouins do it. You are the, uh, so what does that mean to us? You're to be the salt of the earth. You're the one who's to fire up, fire up people for God. That was get their enthusiasm up, to engage them and draw them closer to God. You are the salt of the earth. The earth, the earthen oven. You are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Nine Decapolis cities over there, and at night, you, even tonight with electric lights, but even back in Jesus' day, you look across at night and you can see the houses lit up. A city on a hill, or nine of them, they can see over there. You're a city on a hill, and you would turn a point. It cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You put it on top. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the very same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So, the Sermon on the Mount. Clever and memorable introduction. Nine statements that are counterintuitive, that are easy to remember, that alliterate repetitions of sound, and introduce you to what's to come. Then, he has six propositions that exceed the law. You have heard it said, do not kill, I tell you. You, know, you have heard A, but I tell you B. You have heard C, but I tell you, six of them. And then six ways to implement that, you know, with prayer, fasting, and so on. Six propositions to exceed the law and six ways to implement the law. And then a three-part call to action. So what are we going to do about it? One, two, three. You know, if, if you take a class in homiletics or preaching, um, this, is, this is a silver bullet. Get up there, a clever and memorable introduction, not some stupid joke everybody's going to groan at, but something that will really engage them, right? And then make three major points, develop them in a story, three major points, a call to action, what are you going to do about it, and sit down. That's it. And it works every time. 
I, I was invited, I, I've told this story before, but uh, I was the first Christian to have the position of scholar in residence at Sinai Temple on Wilshire Boulevard, uh, right, out, right in Beverly Hills. Big, important synagogue in Los Angeles. And four things I had, well, one thing I had to do, once per quarter, four times during the year, uh, I preached at services. And they're long. You know, Mass is what? Daily Mass, half hour, 45 minutes, an hour on Sunday. No, no more than an hour because you have to get that batch out and the new batch in. You know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> empty the parking lot, fill the parking lot. But they were three-hour services, you know. And, uh, and, and there, there had to be a thousand people in the, in the congregation. And I was given the sermon to do. And I had a half hour for it. And the, the readings that were done, just like in, in the Roman Catholic liturgy, it's an assigned reading for that Sunday. Every, every synagogue is reading the same thing, right? And you read through the entire Torah in one year. And when you finish, you do it again. And I was given the assigned chapters, Numbers 1 through 5. All they do is count people. <laughs> This whole mob of 603,550 men uh, counted by tribe, clan, and family and positioned around the tabernacle. What do you do with that? And I, I read that. I thought, oh my gosh, this, this is my debut. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do with it? And then it occurred to me that after they got everybody counted up by tribe, clan, and family, positioned them around the tabernacle, God, right? every single Israelite knew who he was, where he belonged, and what he was supposed to do. I'm still trying to figure that out, right? <laughs> Who am I, where do I belong, what am I supposed to do? And, but they knew, they knew. That worked. I had a half hour, clever and memorable introduction. What am I gonna do with these five chapters? You know? And then, who am I, where do I belong, what am I supposed to do? That preaches, you know, that'll work. And, uh, and Jesus was so good at it. I mean, so good at it. This, Sermon on the Mount. We have uh, uh, Father Richard read from Luke. Luke tells the story too, little an abbreviated version of it. But how many times did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? There are 204 towns in Galilee, probably 204 times, right? He just did variations on it. If you've got a really good teaching, you don't do it one time and stick it in a drawer. You pull that thing out and you do it over and over again and you change it and adapt it for your audience and how length of time you have and all the rest, but you got good material. Hey, who am I, what, what, where do I belong, what am I supposed to do? I can pull that one out and do it anywhere, you know? It works, and Jesus did the same thing. So the Sermon on the Mount, and it's so memorable with the, with the alliteration in the Beatitudes, with the, 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 the opposite of what you think it's going to be, the surprise, and then six propositions, six ways to implement, and three-part call to action. You could do this teaching in an hour, you could do it in two hours, you could do it in 10 minutes. It'll work every time. And every good teacher does exactly that. Some of you are teachers. You don't do your best material and never do it again, right? So that's, uh, that's what he did. And, and he did it right here where we are. We are sitting where his audience was sitting and he was teaching like I'm teaching here. This is a great spot. And we're going to another spot after this, right down the hill to Capernaum, where he lived in Peter's house 
for three years. And that's where we head next. Now, we're using the, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes. When we use a site like this, that's you know, run by the nuns, and, uh, we, we take up a little collection. So if uh, somebody has a hat, if you have any shekels or whatever, doesn't matter how much, just drop some in and I'll take it to the Iron Nun so she doesn't beat me up. <laughs> Does the Iron Thank you. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget to go to LogosBibleStudy.com, click on Online Classroom, and check out our latest course, Dr. Creasy Teaches Deuteronomy. Use the coupon code SCRIPTUREUNCOVERED to save 20% at checkout. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.